You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go, and gather the elders of Israel together, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, 
Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. Well, we're in week three of our Exodus series, and last week we met Moses, the hero of the story, the hero of God's people, the Israelites. Someone asked me the other day who my heroes were growing up. Uh, most of them were sportsmen, I reckon. Uh, Dean Jones, the cricketer, Gary Lyon, the footballer. There were some others, Eric Little, the Olympic gold medalist from 1924 who gave up his career to be a missionary in China and ended up being a martyr. And then, of course, there were fictional characters that I loved, like Luke Skywalker, Han Solo. I wasn't massive on superheroes, but I think I've always had a soft spot for the big three, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, you know, the Trinity. Uh, As I've gotten older, the thing I like most about them is their origin stories. Think about Spider-Man. Total nerd, gets bitten by a spider, wins over the girl. Sounds sounds a little bit like me with Ivana, my wife. Uh, Or what about Superman? Shot off a dying planet, winds up on Earth, picks up a school bus when it rolls over. Uh, Again, very similar to my own story. Um, Batman, you know, watches his parents gun down, becomes a ninja in Bhutan. Thankfully, very different to me. But I do love a good origin story. And I think I like these stories, these origin stories, because our heroes at this point are still innocent and uncertain. They're they're still finding out who they are and what they're capable of. We all know what they'll become, but they don't yet. They're still finding their way. And really, they're they're kind of grappling with their calling. Think of Spider-Man. He must decide if he's going to use his powers to make money wrestling or saving people. You know, with great power comes great responsibility. Or think of Superman. He doesn't want to stand out. He just wants to be Clark Kent. But he's been given this gift, a gift that could change the world, and he must choose whether or not he will use it. Well, today, we kind of see the origin story of Moses, and we see him grappling with his calling. God comes to Moses and says to him, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And in this passage, we're going to see how Moses responds to that call. First, though, a little bit of context. Uh, We begin this chapter with Moses in the land of Midian, which is perhaps 600 kilometers from Egypt. Uh, We're told in verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. Now, we heard how he got here last week, didn't we? Uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, was determined to kill all of the Jewish baby boys. And Moses survived only because of his mother's courage and the compassion of Pharaoh's own daughter. Uh, After his mum placed Moses in a little ark, a a basket, and put him on the River river Nile, uh, Pharaoh's daughter found him and took pity on him, we're told, resolving to make him her own son. And so we had this crazy irony that Moses the eventual hero of Israel, grew up in the palace of Pharaoh, uh, being protected unwittingly by the very man who was trying to destroy the Israelites. 
But when Moses grew up, he chose to be with his own people. We're told in chapter 2, verse 11, that when he grew up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He stepped in, he killed the man and hid the body. But to his shock, he was seen doing all this and was forced to flee to, to Midian. God was looking after him, though. In Midian, he rescued some women who were being bullied by some other shepherds, and their father, Jethro, was so impressed by this that Moses ended up marrying one of the daughters. And now we find him, some 40 years later, shepherding Jethro's flock. And then he encounters God. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Now, when it says the angel of the Lord, we probably need to look at that a little bit. In the Bible, angels are also known as messengers of God. And it's clear that this angel has been sent to Moses with a message from God. But it's actually even more than that. This is not just a message from God. It seems like it is God in some sense. Verse 4, God called to Moses out of the bush. And so we can probably say that the angel of the Lord here is a physical manifestation of God himself. We know, of course, that God would eventually come to earth in physical form through Jesus, that he was the word, became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. And this seems to be a kind of preview of that, a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do in the incarnation. So Moses is encountering God. Amazing stuff. And he appears to Moses here in a burning bush. Why would he appear like this? Well, I think it's because... Fire really represents the dynamics of approaching God. Uh, We see fire used as a frequent metaphor for God in the Bible, in Exodus in particular. In chapter 24, for instance, we're told that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. And perhaps that's because fire encapsulates the kind of tension or the, the paradox as we think about relating to God. I mean, you think about fire, it's beautiful, but it's intimidating. You see it, you want to be near it, but you can't get too close because it can destroy you. And so it is with God. There's something beautiful about God, something glorious and captivating, and yet utterly intimidating because he's holy, he's perfect. And that's what Moses experiences here. He sees the bush, he turns aside to look at it because it's beautiful, But as soon as he does so, God warns him not to get any closer. Chapter 3, verse 5, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And in fact, instinctively, Moses hid his face, we're told in verse 6, for he was afraid to look at God. He sensed that God was too great for him, too holy. You see, there's a blinding, fiery intensity about God and his holiness. It exposes and overwhelms us. Moses has this sense that he falls short of the glory of God, that God is holy and he is not, that God is somehow unapproachable. And yet, incredibly, this unapproachable God approaches Moses and speaks with him. 
Verse 7, then the Lord God, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And then verse 10, come. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It's an incredible and extraordinary message, and it's one that changes everything for Moses, for Egypt, and for God's people, Israel. You see, this is a sign, this is an assurance that God is on the move. We've seen over the last couple of weeks that God had chosen Israel to be his people, his treasured possession. He'd promised to bless them, to make them great, to give them a land of their own. But for generations, they've been suffering in Egypt. They've been enslaved. They've been oppressed. They've been beaten down. And in desperation, they've been crying out to God, pleading for rescue, begging him to save them. And now we see God responding. He's seen their affliction. He's heard their cry. He knows their suffering. And so he's going to act. In verse 8, he's come, he has come down to bring them up out of Egypt and to take them to the land that he's promised them. This is his plan. This is his commitment. And he wants Moses to be a part of it. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So let's kind of take stock here. Moses is encountering God the holy God. He's experiencing how overwhelming that is. And yet this unapproachable God has approached him with this mission. He's been given this calling to lead his people out of Egypt. Well, how do you even respond to that? What do you do with such an extraordinary mission, a calling? What do you do? Well, here we see Moses responds with a couple of questions. We're going to track them uh, in this uh, time together. The first one is this. Moses asks, who am I? Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, Moses is experiencing God's uh, infinite greatness in the bush. He's feeling the holiness of God. He's hiding his face from God's glory. And that's actually what happens whenever God's people experience his, his greatness in the Bible. They're, they're overwhelmed. So in Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet uh, has this vision and the glory of God fills the temple, he cries out, woe is me for I am lost. I, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He's overwhelmed by God's holiness. He feels unworthy. And so that's what Moses feels here too, probably. Who am I to be a part of your work? And perhaps he also feels a bit confused. I mean, God said that he's going to do this. Off, come down to deliver them, to bring them up. And so Moses is probably wondering, well, why do you need me? What can I add? What can I do? Who am I? But I think there's also a lot of self-doubt here. You see, it's been 40 years since Moses had been in Egypt. Half of his generation is probably dead by now, and so who's even going to remember him? And even if people did remember him, why would they remember him fondly? I mean, he grew up in a palace separate from his people's struggles. He didn't understand their plight. He hadn't slaved alongside them. 
And when he came out of the palace, he was quickly rejected by his countrymen as a meddler who made you a prince and a judge over us. So why would they listen to him now? And so Moses asked, who am I? Who am I to do all this? How can I do this? Really, what he's looking for is confidence, for reassurance. What do you see in me, God, that would make you give me this task? It's intriguing then how God responds. Verse 12, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's kind of like the answer that isn't an answer. Moses is asking, what do you see in me? And God responds, look, that's irrelevant. Just look at me instead. It's so unexpected. I mean, there are things that God could have said. As we saw last week, Moses had a fierce sense of justice, so God could have affirmed that. Or he could have spoken about how he's been preparing him for this. Uh, An Israelite, instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, we're told in Acts 7, now being prepared to go back and face the Egyptians. That's the kind of thing that I think I would have said, and that's the kind of thing I think that Moses wanted to hear. But it's not what God says. No, he just says, I will be with you. That's because it's not about what Moses is capable of. It's about what God is capable of. It doesn't matter how challenging the task is. If God is involved, it will be accomplished. Moses will be able to do this in the strength that God will provide. Just see the wisdom of God here. He's reframing things for Moses. As the Bible commentator Philip Ryken puts it, if he had shown Moses that he was fully qualified for his calling. That would have led Moses to trust in his gifts rather than in his God. The real question was not who Moses was, but who God was. The Exodus did not depend on the competence of Moses, but on the presence of God. Now, there's a really important principle that I want to explore in a moment, but first I want to continue tracking Moses' conversation with God, because in verse 14 he asks a second question. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Uh, So if Moses' first question was, who am I? Then his second really is, who are you? You see, Moses needs to know more. Yes, God is assuring him that he will go with him, but who is God exactly? Now, I don't think this means that Moses didn't know who God is. No, it's more a question of... uh, How will he convince God's people what kind of God he is? Uh, How can he convince his people to trust? I mean, it's been years, centuries, generations of suffering. So how can Moses help them believe that God is actually going to do this, that God is coming to rescue them? What if they're too jaded? What if they've lost hope? And so he asked God, what is your name? Who are you? How can we be sure that you're going to do this? Well, God's answer is, again, profound. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Uh, This is a really profound 
answer, and yet it's also quite a complicated one. And so I, want, I need to take us through a little bit of technical stuff before we can really unpack what this means. You see, the first thing that's tricky here is working out where God is responding to Moses, where God is giving his name. Is it there in verse 14 when he says, I am who I am? Or is it later in verse 15, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. You see, in verse 14, God says, I am who I am. But this probably isn't him saying his name. It's more an explanation of what he's like. It's like he's saying, I I am who I am. As Riken puts it, who is God? God is who he is, and that's all there is to it. Uh, despite that, however, God is willing to accommodate himself to them and to give them a name that they can call him. So in verse 15, he calls himself the Lord, the God of your fathers. That word Lord, if you're reading along in your Bibles, you'll notice is in capitals, which is code in an English Bible for the Hebrew word Yahweh. And so effectively, God's name is Yahweh. He calls himself the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers. Now, the meaning of names in the Bible is always significant. So what does this name Yahweh mean? Well, it means I am. So so putting this together, when Moses asks God for a name, God says, look, my name's sort of irrelevant. I just am, but I'll give you a name that you can call me. It's Yahweh which means I am. <laughs> but what does this all signify? What, is, what does God's name reveal about him? And what does he want us to understand? How, how does this help Moses and help us? Well, the first thing is, it helps us see that God is self-existing. Uh, he is and always has been. You see, we are all created. We've all been made by someone God. We don't have life within ourselves. It must be given to us. Our life comes from God, but God's life, his being, his essence, his existence comes from himself. He is self-existent, self-sufficient. He just is. And that also points to the fact that God is eternal and unchanging. You see, his name can be put in various tenses. It's a, it's a noun form from a Hebrew verb, which means to be or to happen or to become. So Tim Chester says, you could say, I have always been who I have always been. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And so without beginning and without end, God just is and always has been. And all of that means that his promises are reliable. So he can be trusted. You see, Moses and Israel need to know that God can be trusted, that he'll keep the promises he's made centuries before, that he'll be faithful to his people. And because God is the great I am, they can be confident. See, they need to know that the the God who set his heart on them in the past, that whatever motivated him to do that in the past is still true now and will still be true in the future. And because God is the great I am, they can be. Just look at how God explains it to Moses. He's the God of the present who sees their suffering. Verse 16, say to the elders of Israel, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. 
He's also the God of the past who remembers his covenant. He says in verse 15, he is the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And he is the God of the future who will deliver them. Verse 17, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. God always is. And so he sees what's happening in the present and will do something in the future because of a promise he made in the past. He sums it up beautifully in verse 16. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. He's the God of Abraham, the God who made these promises, and he will be known as this God forever. And so he'll keep those promises. Well, Moses' questions, who am I, who are you, are really, I think, the most important questions that any human can ask. John Calvin uh, writes in his Institutes 500 years ago, nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. It is certain, Calvin says, that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. What he's saying is to understand who you are, you must understand who God is. And that's what we see Moses experiencing here. He sees God. He comes face to face, confronts God's greatness, his glory. And that makes him see himself. He he feels his own unworthiness, his unholiness. He hides his face before the wonder of God. But then wonderfully, this unapproachable God says, no, 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 lift your eyes, look at me again. I've got a mission for you. I'm going to take you on this journey, and I want you to be a part of this, this great thing that I'm going to do. Moses wonders if he can do it. Who am I? And so God shows himself once more to him. I'm going to be with you. This task is possible because I will be with you and I am the great I am. And this is really important for us to see because I I think God is inviting us to encounter him as well. I mean, we don't have a burning bush right in front of us, but we do have the story of it. And we do have the greatness of God's glory all around us. And now he's inviting us to look at him, to, to see what he is like, to come to a knowledge of him, to look upon God's face, as Calvin would put it. So how do we respond to that? Well, the first thing we need to feel, we ought to feel, is our unworthiness, our lack of holiness. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when you really look at God, you feel that. Calvin talked about this too, likening it to when we look at the sun. You see, when we're looking around us, when we're looking horizontally, we we feel like we can see things pretty well. Everything seems clear. We we look okay. We look at other people and we think, oh, I'm probably better than them. I'm not too far off them. I'm okay. I'm I'm an okay guy. I'm, I'm pretty decent. But then when I look at the sun, I can't see anything else properly. The radiance of the sun overwhelms me. And so it is with our spiritual virtues. We can look across and feel like we're okay, but when we see God's greatness, his holiness, then we truly see what we are like. We see our unholiness. When we look at God, we're bound to hide our faces. He is unapproachable. And yet, even as we realize this, he approaches us. That's the wonder of Jesus Christ. In Christ, God 
approaches us. Jesus is God, Colossians 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And he has stepped into this world. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He was God in the flesh. Indeed, when he came, he actually took the name I Am. The God who always was and always will be stepped into the present, into a specific time and space. And he did this to bring together a holy God and an unholy people. We're sinful, we're rebellious, we're, we fall short of his glory. And so Jesus came down to bring us up. He came down to this broken world to bring us up to God. In Jesus, the unapproachable God approaches us. And yet, incredibly, humanity rejected him. I mean, this is the great tragic mystery of Jesus. I mean, here is God in the flesh, Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. This is the great I am come to fulfill his promises, and yet humanity rejects him. Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected of men. As as one from one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so you see Moses in this passage, he sees God's glory and he hides his face. But when Jesus, when God came in the flesh, people spat in his face. And so the great I am, the one who had given us life, gave his life on the cross. His life was snuffed out. And yet, incredibly, this was all part of God's plan again. Remember, God is the great I am. The present happens only because of his past plan. And this was how God was fulfilling his promises. He'd chosen his people long before, before the foundation of the world. And Jesus was now securing them for himself, dying for their sin. And so his life wasn't taken, it was given. He laid down his life of his own accord. He laid it down for us. 2 Corinthians 5 says that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That right word righteousness is kind of like a, a legal word. Uh, we, When we stand before God, we don't have a righteousness. We're unholy. We fall short of God's glory. But because of what Jesus has done in his perfect obedience and then his death on the cross, that secures a righteousness for us. It's a little bit like he's, he's clothing us in his righteousness. You see, when we stand before the holy God, this fire of God's holiness, we will be consumed. We fall short of what he's looking for. He could overwhelm us. But then Jesus intervenes and gives us his righteousness And now we're clothed by that. And so when God, the holy God, looks at us, he sees what Jesus has done. And so we're able to stand before God. We're able to be with God. We're embraced by God. We're welcome in his presence. We are able to approach the unapproachable God. This is God's love for us. He gave his life to make his promises come true. And then, remarkably, he even goes to the next step. He gives us a commission, a mission, a calling. 
to tell the world of the hope that there is in Jesus. Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Or 2 Corinthians 5, All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and (coughs) entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Think about that word ambassador. A king has an ambassador, a prime minister, a president, a powerful person has an ambassador who speaks for them, who represents them. Now, our great king, Christ, is inviting us to be ambassadors. He's got this wonderful message of hope. The unapproachable God has approached us in Christ. He's brought us to him. He's given us life. And now he sends us out to show to, uh, to tell other people that there is hope, that they can come to God too if they come to Christ. And so this is what God is inviting us to be. This is our mission, to pass on the message of salvation. We might not be Moses, but we have been given this mission, and each one of us are called to play a part in it. Now, we might have mixed feelings about this. We might, we might be saying, oh, who am I? What do I know? What can I do? Am I good enough? Will anyone listen to me? And God's answer to us is the same as the answer he gave to Moses. I will be with you. Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then a couple of sentences later, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As Riken puts it, the call to God's service always comes with the promise of God's presence. And so really, we have these questions, who am I? But that doesn't matter. God is with us. And so really, the big question is, who will we be? Will we respond and embrace his mission, trusting him to help us complete it? Or will we walk away? Or will we just keep asking more questions? Will we try to stall? Because really, that's what we're going to see with Moses in this passage. You see, I'd love it if this passage just finished at chapter 3. God's given Moses a commission, promised to help him fulfill it. I'm gonna, I want you to help me lead my people out of Egypt. It's a big task, but you'll be able to do it because I'm with you. I'm the great I am. That should be enough for Moses. But if we read on, we find out that he still has more questions. Chapter 4, verse 1, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. I mean, Moses has had this profound experience of God, but he's wondering if other people will believe him. Um, I've had this supernatural experience, but how will they believe if they haven't seen it? But this shows a lack of faith because God has promised him that they will listen. Verse 18, gather the elders of Israel together, speak to them, and they will listen to your voice. But graciously, God gives him some take-home miracles so he can show his supernatural power to others. He enables Moses to change his staff into a snake and back again. He turns his hand leprous like snow and then restores it. It's all very impressive, but still Moses uh, is cautious. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. There's a lot of conjecture about what Moses means here. Is he worried that he's lost his Egyptian? You know, he, he, it's been 40 years perhaps since he's spoken. Maybe he's forgotten it. 
Perhaps he worries that he won't be smart enough in the moment. He won't be quick enough on his feet. Or perhaps he's got some sort of speech impediment. Uh, So the phrase literally means, I am heavy of mouth. But again, all of these things, all of these questions are really just Moses focusing on who he is, asking who he is and forgetting God's answer. It's not about who you are. It's about whether or not I'm with you, and I promise to be with you. And so God says this again, verse 11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. I'm your creator, so I can give you what you need. I'll give you the words, and I'll give you the ability to say them. Really, it's starting to feel like Moses might be stalling here. And he finally reveals why in verse 13. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) Now Moses is unmasked. He's had all these questions and doubts, but they don't look like questions now so much as objections. It sounded quite pious, quite understandable, but underneath it, there's something else. He just doesn't want to do it. Now, why is this? Perhaps he's afraid. He's afraid of what's going to happen when he faces Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. Perhaps he just doesn't feel confident leading. He doesn't want to lead other people. doesn't matter how much God reassures him. He just doesn't think he can do it. Or perhaps it's actually more basic than that. Perhaps he just doesn't want the hassle. Maybe he wants an easy life. I mean, he was probably comfortable. He was secure. He was resigned, perhaps, to living out his life in obscurity. He was far from the action, but he was far from the danger as well. His sheep followed him. He didn't have to worry anymore about what people thought of him. And that sounds plausible to me because it actually sounds like me. You know, I often hear people uh, saying how big our life can be. You hear preachers say, make your, you can make your way in the world. You can be an influencer. You can make an impact. You can change the world. And honestly, it just tires me out because I actually just want a simple life, a comfortable life. Get up, work, watch TV, read a book, hang out with my kids, have a nice sleep, watch my kids grow up. That'll do me. A mediocre life, that's okay with me. And I wonder if I'm not the only one. You see, sometimes I think we balk at God's call, not because we're not suited to it, but because we don't want to. Yes, we've got questions. Who am I? Will people listen? But God's already answered those questions. With man, anything is impossible, God says, but with God, all things are possible. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. If we're worried, we don't have the words. Jesus promised to give them to us in Matthew 10. And so maybe our questions are actually just objections. We don't want to challenge the jeopardy, the discomfort. As I've got a confession to make. I love reading the gospel. I love seeing the gospel, finding the gospel in every passage, seeing how uh, we can tell the gospel in new ways. I love preaching the gospel. But I've got to be honest, I don't often tell the gospel face-to-face to someone in my street, to a neighbour or a friend. You see, I'm worried about upsetting people. 
I'm worried about breaking the harmony. I mean, all my neighbours, I, I love my neighbours, and we have this really great street that we live on, and it's comfortable and it's good, and I, I, they know that I'm a pastor. But I sometimes have these moments where I could say more and I pull back because I don't want to upset things. I don't want to press in, risk something. I want to be comfortable. And I also think that when you really pursue God's kingdom and you pursue his mission, you expose yourself to so much potential hurt. Not just persecution here, but just emotional hurt. I was, you know, I'm doing some theological study at the moment, and we had to do a field trip for one of my subjects to a mosque. And I was just profoundly unsettled by the thought of having all of these people who are so diligent and dedicated but they have a false religion that they're serving. And they're going to be separate from God for eternity unless they turn. And that's such a crushing thought. It's so sobering. And so I'd rather kind of put that out of my mind. I'd rather just have a comfortable life where I'm just focusing on myself. But that's not right. That's not how it's supposed to be. God has called us given me a mission. God doesn't need me, but when he calls us, he requires us. He has a specific ministry for each one of us to complete and woe betide us if we do not do it. And so we're left facing the question, who will we be? Will we follow God's call for us, the mission that he's given us, or ask him to send someone else? Will we do the work he's assigned us, use the gifts he's given us, trust his power and see it work in our lives or just walk away? Well, thankfully, Moses gave his life to the mission. In the weeks to come, we'll see Moses come back to his countrymen, convince them that God is on the move. We'll see him confront Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, stare him down, and then we'll see him lead his people out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and onto their travels. He will become Israel's hero. But he wouldn't want you to say that. You see, in all of this, he discovered that it wasn't about him. It was all about God, and God could do everything. In fact, as he led his people through the Red Sea, he He sang this song in Exodus 15 where he says, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The man who kept asking, Who am I? found the strength of the one who is. And now God wants us to find that strength too. God loves to work through us, to bring us into his work. So will we take it? 1 Peter 2 says, We are called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. And I think that's the secret here. So I could just leave you with you feeling guilty that you've just got to go out and talk to people you don't really want to, perhaps. That's not going to help. I've found that the thing that most motivates me to share my faith when I share it is when I'm gazing at God and I'm seeing the excellencies of God. That's what motivates me. When I'm experiencing the wonder of his grace and his goodness, when I'm seeing the the wonder of his glory, the fire of his holiness, that's when I want to tell people about him. You see, that will be the thing that inspires us. 
the more we look at God, the more we experience him, the more we'll tell people about him. Because we have this extraordinary thing. Moses got to encounter God in the burning bush for one afternoon, and it was a profound experience. But because of what Jesus has done, we have something even more profound. We don't just have the unapproachable God out there looming over us. He's come to us, and now he lives inside us. Because of what Jesus has done, we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We have the fire of God inside us. And that fire can burn within us, giving us the passion, the joy to share him with others. Let's pray that happens. Father God, thank you for the miracle that we get to pray to you, that you, the mighty God, the one who is a devouring fire, the unapproachable God, has made himself approachable through Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us, that you came and that you were righteous on our behalf, and so we can face you, we can face God. We thank you that uh, you sent the Spirit to be inside us, and then one day we get to face you face to face and to enjoy you forever, not just an afternoon, but face to face forever. Lord, please inspire us. Give us a deep sense of your holiness, of our unworthiness and your grace. Help us to see the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness into your marvellous light and then inspire us to get out there and to tell other people about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.